It's June 10th, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. We'll start things off today with a couple of special guests who are here to tell us about a couple of special upcoming events. Brian Butling from Sultan Ventures is here to tell us about the next Honolulu Startup Weekend. Then Ian Kitajima returns to fill us in on a design thinking boot camp. And finally, we'll talk about the sharing economy with Ben Trevino from BikeShare and Aaron Landry from Car2Go. Can we transform transportation and improve our quality of life by rethinking the culture of ownership? Of course, we'd love your questions as well and thoughts as part of that conversation, so be ready to call in or tweet. But and of first, course, now joining us is Brian Butling, and he's here to tell us about the uh, next Startup Weekend, which is actually been kind of building up, right? I mean, Brian? Yeah. Hey, hi, guys. Uh, thank you for uh, having me again. This is always fun joining you guys. Well, you know, the Startup Weekend is is like a pretty happening thing. I mean, there was uh, <laughs> the Maui event yeah, just, uh, it's, a little more than a month ago. And it's been a very busy month in my life um, <laughs> <laughs> with Startup Weekend. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's pretty much... Uh, it's a passion of mine. It's you know it, what we like to, to pride ourselves on is we're cultivating that entrepreneurship com- uh, community. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And now that we've just done our second one on Maui, and we've grown from 30 participants last year in 2014 to have almost 80 participants um, at our last event in May, um, really shows that people are interested, and not only interested but they're being inspired by other people to become. Not necessarily maybe become entrepreneurs, but learn that that startup mindset and mm-hmm. that entrepreneurial mindset. And so now we're looking for our, our seventh event here in uh, Honolulu next week, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And like you said, Bert, uh, we've been building up uh, to it. Um, this year was uh, the first time ever we've done a series of workshops. Yeah, you know, and um, uh, those workshops I thought were pretty key in terms of the startup and entrepreneurial community being that there's a lot of interest in sort of lean startup and agile, you know, just the agile protocol or process mm-hmm. yeah. that people might uh, implement. Uh, things like Scrum and, and um, you know, uh, you tell us, tell us about <laughs> what is it that you started to kind of build up uh, to get to Startup Weekend? Yeah, so it, it, it the, the conversation actually started last year. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen that, we're, we're witnessing this frustration with a lot of our participants where they knew what a startup was and they knew what an entrepreneur was and how to build a business, but they didn't realize what tools and resources were out there to manage and and run a startup efficiently within a 54-hour period. And so these buzzwords started popping up like Lean, Mm -hmm. um, Scrum, and and whatnot. And so we we looked around within our community um, and a lot of um, brainstorming with with the, uh, the team over at Sultan Ventures and, and their whole goal with, or our whole goal with education, um, you know, that, that was something that we really, really wanted to test. And, uh, and we wanted to we look at, all right, what are those three things uh, that people look mm-hmm. at in, in building a, a, a startup company? And, and the first, and then probably the lowest hanging fruit was that lean methodology, mm-hmm. that lean framework, you know, that Steve Case made so famous. Um, and so we took a deep, deep dive into that uh, on our first workshop and then our workshop uh, last week was all about agile project development mm-hmm. and the Scrum, the Kanban board, mm-hmm. and and really how to project manage a team and have an end goal in mind, an end goal in sight. And it's perfect for a 54-hour event. I mean, you have so much to do, and yet you want to dedicate and manage that team efficiently, 
and give everyone sort of accountability throughout that weekend. And we were like, this is perfect for our attendees. And so we've actually had a great turnout. We've had about 25 to 30 attendees. And we have our last workshop actually happening tomorrow at Sultan Ventures. And the last workshop is also very important. Yeah, yeah. So the last workshop I'll actually lead. Um, it's going to be a pitch workshop. And so we're going to teach you the, the basics of what Startup Weekend is. Um, mm-hmm. And that'll be a quick 15-minute intro. But then we'll take a deep, deep dive into what is the weekend about. And then also that very, very important pitch, that pitch fire that happens Friday night, which is basically uh, translating that passion and idea that you have that you come to the event with to a crowd of people and not only translating that but encouraging people uh, to join your team and, and to dedicate their next 54 hours of their life to work on that product and launch it. Mm-hmm. Well, I like the idea that uh, you kind of worked up, uh, uh, sort of lead up to this event. It's, it is a significant event. I, I was surprised when one of my newer coworkers said, oh, yeah, I went to one. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was like, oh, okay. And I wouldn't even thought uh, that as a, as a general business person that mm-hmm. he would be interested in that. But there is that challenge where you have some people that are Startup Weekend veterans, yeah. and they're like, okay, so let's set up a scrum board and do a yeah. SWOT analysis. Yeah. I'm, maybe I'm just thinking about Silicon Valley, the TV <laughs> show. But, you know, some tools that everybody Pooley, understands Pooley. and uh, some things that they're new to. Yeah. So – uh, what do you say is the makeup, I mean, of the group now? Are you seeing some really hardcore people that kind of come uh, event to event twice a year or whatever? Or are you seeing um, actually still more newcomers uh, adding kind of new ideas and diversity to the operation? Yeah. What's that breakdown? Yeah, that's a great question, Ryan. Um, so we've actually seen, um, again, over the last year, a, a shift. Before it used to be about 70% were return and 30% were new. But last year it was we had two events and there was 50-50 breakdown. We were just really, really surprised um, on that. And we're hoping that is the same outcome this year. Um, and that's, we get about, you know, 100 people to attend and participate. So that's, you know, introducing, you think about it, two events, 100 new people to the entrepreneurial mindset mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. over the year. Um, and, and it's not only maybe to introduce them to what an entrepreneur is, but all these other things of, like you mentioned, like a scrum board, you can do that to any position, any job, any industry, and just run your company more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And, and years, in years past, act, uh, companies have sent you know groups yes, of their exactly. employees to start. Weekend. I, con- I imagine that continues so they can yeah. take those those skills and those talents and just that creative thinking, yeah. outside-of-the-box thinking, yeah. back to their company. Yeah, and um, that, that's actually been a question I've been getting a, a lot from companies here locally is, you know, can we bring a team? And my suggestion is yes. I mean, it, it also gives employees that opportunity to empower themselves and as an employer you can look at all right who are my leaders within the team now and who can i take out of their comfort zone and look now think more forward thinking of who are these people that i'm going to set up to be the executives of the company or the Mm -hmm. forward thinking thinkers of the company a lot of sorry a lot of companies have kind of like change agents within them and then i think sending them to this event is kind of how you see that thought uh one last question because you had that good statistic in terms of the breakdown of newcomers and hardcore startup weekend fans um there's always that question too is after startup weekend you come you pitch an idea you build a quote-unquote company a startup idea um what do you see in terms of those continuing beyond i mean it's not it's certainly not the majority it's not even a minority it's probably a small group but there have been some success stories coming out of this event yeah there's been a ton of success stories um, I mean, uh, the the big one, obviously, is Mentilet. She pitched, I believe, two years ago. Um, just recently, uh, Varsity Prep uh, got that uh, funding from Bubs, um, and they're continuing to run their startup. Um, you also have uh, Tiffany and Mark Quezada. Oh, yes. Um, even though they, you know, they, their, their startup uh, didn't make it through Startup Weekend, 
um, they were to ma- able to network and meet people, and now they launched Hobnob. Mm-hmm. You know, and they to me, I look at them as like the pivotal, you know, uh, person that you want attending these events. It's it's they're not doing it to per se launch a company and get a ton of money from it. It's the experience, it's the network, and learning all of that. Right, and I you know I don't think uh, the the pressure to find the you know the company that goes IPO because they went to Startup Weekend yeah. should yeah. lie in your shoulders. But yeah. I, I like the fact that. Uh, you've looked at ways of building the capacity or the understanding of going through like these lean methodologies mm-hmm. uh, and and then get them to go to Startup Weekend so that Startup Weekend doesn't just stand alone exactly. as an yeah. event. Yeah. And then after all of that experience, they actually come out with a better understanding of what it takes to be an entrepreneur, be a, a, a small business. Yeah. And then maybe they can start to look at going into an accelerator or some other type of uh, mentoring program. Yeah. So I think you know I think that's a, a great sort of uh, uh, the, the ecosystem. I mean, you're de- definitely part of the ecosystem, mm-hmm. building that capacity mm-hmm. so that people can move on. That actually leads to our our last workshop, which we haven't announced yet, but it's going to be a month after. So we want to set a benchmark workshop huh. afterwards, where we're going to invite all of the uh, stakeholders within the ecosystem to pitch who they are. So you have people like Salt and Ventures, Accelerate UH, Blue Startups, Energy Accelerator. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the list goes on and, and, and just bring them in here and say, hey, we are here to support you as entrepreneurs and this is what the resources we have. These are the tools that we have. And, you know, and it's really, again, build that ecosystem and all that. Do you see that. something happening to perhaps uh, help the company that might not go the accelerator route and and perhaps just start a small boutique tech business. A I mean, lifestyle business. a lifestyle <laughs> business. I mean, yeah. and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but but what is out there that would provide them the same or well, a similar support structure as perhaps a uh, you know an accelerator? Uh, I mean, there's there's lots of things out there. Um, you know, there's anything from the SBA, the Small Business mm-hmm. uh, the Administration, mm-hmm. um, and they do a lot of work. Again, I mean, I have to toot my own horn, but that's, uh, I mean, this is the reason why I mean, we all came together at Salt and Ventures was to to really hit on that point of people have this misconception that startups mean high growth tech company, mm-hmm. but it's just taking a, it's just taking a business model that is scalable and reputable. And it could be lifestyle, it could be consultant, it could be a start, I mean, a tech company. But, you know, it's all about educating people on saying, hey, you know, anything is possible and here are the tools and here's how to do it efficiently and here are the success stories behind it. Well, and you bring up a a good segue back to uh, the Maui event because I think out of the Maui event, wasn't there a a company that proposed like making pickles because there weren't any pickles on Maui? Yeah, yeah. Fresh pickles? Yeah, it, it was a great story. I mean, we had, we had, Eight companies pitch, uh, four of which were tech-related, four of which were lifestyle-related. And within the top three, we had a company called, I believe, Wailua Pickles. Mm-hmm. And all they wanted to do was take organic, locally grown pickles on Maui and be the main distributor to all of Hawaii. And that's perfect. I mean, it's scalable. It's repeatable. It's well. I love. I love the periscope that was being shown. I mean, you yeah. were <laughs> live streaming it, and and the question was asked. Um, I think it was uh, maybe Omar, you know, Sultan was yeah. asking. So what is the problem you're trying to fix? Yeah. Not enough pickles? Exactly. Yeah. That was yeah. the answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if somebody great. wants to pitch their pickle idea or other uh, need that they feel could be f- uh, filled by a startup or a new business, yeah. where can they go? And uh, once again, when is this event taking place? Yeah. So for more information, um, you can go to honolulu.up.co. You can also mm. follow us on Facebook at Startup Weekend Honolulu. Our Twitter handle is SWHNL, and then our event is next week, Friday, 
uh, June 19th to the 21st. We have some awesome judges. We have some awesome sponsors. Hawaii National Bank is actually our, our fiscal oh. sponsor this year for mm-hmm. both events. Former employer of mine. Fantastic. Oh, awesome. And uh, last thing is we have a promo code. If you type in SWHNL right now, you'll get $10 off. Okay. We'll That's put that up on our show notes. <laughs> Brian, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, guys. And in fact, Brian is going to do a quick turnaround from that very busy, very dynamic Startup Weekend event to attend another event, which, similar to Brian's event, helps you think differently and solve pro- uh, solve problems through uh, process and engineering like that. Yes. Joining us now in the studio to tell us about that event is longtime friend and uh, Oceanit uh, guru, guru Ian Kitajima. Welcome to the show. How's it, guys? Good to be back. Now, Ian, you uh, have really been a, a leader in the local community in a concept called design thinking. It goes back to Stanford, goes back to uh, a lot of really great ideas and ways to, to, to make them germinate, idea, etc. So for those, though, who have not heard you on previous shows, I think it's been a while since we've had you talk, talk about this boot camp. Mm, uh, why does somebody need design thinking in their lives? I don't know if people need design thinking. Um, <laughs> so, it, it's so design thinking is a human-centered problem-solving process. So, the way I think of it is, you know, when somebody says, you know, think outside the box, the next question is always, for me at least, is, well, how do you do that? Because if I knew how to do it, I'd be doing it. I mean, so design thinking is at least one form of a way to actually think outside the box. Mm-hmm. So it gives you a five-step process. Um, to go through it, so it's basically empathy, define, ideate, prototype, and test. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a great way, I mean, to, to re- kind of rewire your brain in a way to, to see problems and opportunities um, that you may not be able to see sometimes. So, so big companies, big and small, including Airbnb and Google and Apple and Facebook and all of these companies have been starting to learn this process through Stanford and through IDEO who are kind of known for being the guys who kind of kick it off. And so... Several years ago, we got involved from a company standpoint, but very early on, as we started learning the process, realized that this was a great way. Uh, It was a way to empower um, people with a way to think in a different way. And one of the great um, opportunities to use design thinking is on very complex problems where it's very hard to imagine what the solutions are. So the more complex, the more difficult, the more you don't know what maybe the solution is, design thinking is really great for for that. And so one of the really challenging, I think, issues we have, not just here in Hawaii, but across the nation, is around education. So that's where, um, back in 2011, we did the first annual Design Thinking Hawaii Boot Camp, and very much focused around educators. Mm-hmm. And so this year is the fifth annual one. Um, again, very focused around educators. What's kind of nice is we have a whole te- a couple of teams from UH Hilo. We have a team from H- um, Hilo High School, uh, of course, Waipahu High School, and several other um, public schools, including elementary schools, private schools. But this year, we also have a group of um, nonprofits, private companies as well, um, kind of joining us. So, you know, when you start to apply the design thinking process in education, how is it? Can you give us an example of how? a team inside education might apply this methodology to perhaps come out with something that's more engaging for students? So so some, you know, one um, very simple example I think is around when, when you think about being more human-centered, if you think about a school, who, who is really, in a sense, the customer or who's the end user? It's the student. 
And so what was fascinating was to actually have students attend the boot camp and then take this process back to their school and actually teach it to educators as well as to other students and then start to kind of redesign or reimagine um, what the classroom would be like, what lunch would be like, how they would learn math, how would they learn other things, but really driving it from the student's perspective on how they would want to learn things versus very top-down where I'm the teacher and I, and this is the way I'm going to teach it to you and I don't care not I don't care, but it's it's a very top-down kind of approach, mm-hmm. whereas all of a sudden the students are now empowered to be part of the process of how to think about education because normally they're outside of the process. So design thinking works best when you can actually create these teams where the end users really become part of your design team. Mm-hmm. And so everything from you know school lunches to prom to whatever you can imagine to redesigning math curriculum is uh, very exciting to see happening in the public schools. Now you're saying that this workshop, and I, 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 I've, I've been able to participate in a few, and I, I found them very fascinating. And in part, it's because you're learning a process, like you said, it's learning a, a way of thinking, a way of approaching a problem, the five different steps. Um, but certainly, uh, it's not a completely theoretical event either, in the sense that, especially since you're focusing on education, you're probably going to be putting up some genuine real-world challenges that educators face. We recently had uh, Kamehameha Schools. They're doing their unconference, and they're also trying to help educators and give them the tools they need to teach more effectively. Uh, Do you have any uh, preview or an example of one of the kinds of problems for Hawaii and for this particular event that you might put forward for them to try to attack? So one of the things, actually, when when you're first learning design thinking, especially um, just to let everyone knows, is it's not going to only be educators, right? So there's going to be a, a whole diversity of groups of people there. So what we try to do is not focus on a particular um, issue that's too close. And for example, we, we're not going to do a challenge around education because mm-hmm. the purpose of the introductory boot camp is to teach you the process. Mm, so we okay. want you to focus on the process versus sometimes when you're an expert in an area and we bring in a topic in your subject area, you get stuck in that old thing, in that whole thing, versus learning the process. So this year, actually, we're going to be doing a challenge around the kind of redesigning the voter experience. Ah, oh, that'd be interesting. <clears throat> yeah, so it's kind of this kind of way out there, but but it's something I, I think a lot of people can uh, engage with. The interesting thing about this year's boot camp is that it actually are there's two boot camps. So from June twenty second to the twenty fourth is the introductory boot camp. And then from from that Wednesday, the 24th to Friday, is actually an intermediate boot camp. Mm -hmm. So this is the first year where we're going to actually be doing uh, two boot camps for the entire week. Now, in the second boot camp, which is the uh, intermediate boot camp, that's where you're going to bring your own team with your own challenge. And then you actually approach it. And you will then, yeah. And then we will help you through the process. Because this is typically for folks who have a lot more experience but are kind of hitting the wall Mm -hmm, with a particular mm -hmm. challenge or how they're using the process. And so... The second half of the week will really be, be about teams bringing their biggest or one of their challenges and actually going through the process. So I can certainly see examples of nonprofits or even companies, private companies, yep. uh, tackling that in that second session. Yeah, so probably uh, I think a lot of the small uh, startups that are going through Startup Weekend might even <laughs> yeah, actually benefit bring from. Bring them over. Uh, yeah, so yeah, Brian will over. be there with us. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds good. Well, so uh, where can people find out more information? So probably the easiest way is to just go online, Google Design Thinking Hawaii Bootcamp. Okay. 2015. Um, the registration information is online um, on eventbrite.com. Public school educators can go to the boot camp for $250. We have a, a select a- number of scholarships still available. Mm. Otherwise, if you're a 
private uh, private educator, school educator, or a nonprofit, it's one thousand two hundred fifty dollars. And then for corporate folks on the for-profit companies, it's two thousand five hundred dollars. All right. Well, uh, definitely the educators can see what uh, bargain they're getting That's with true. this process. Yep. Well, well, thanks, Ian, for joining us today. And of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Ben Trevino and Aaron Landry to talk about car sharing, bike sharing and the sharing economy. Will we be able to give up our attachment to owning things and collectively meet our transportation needs? We'd, of course, love your questions as well. As part of that conversation, you give us a call at 941-3689, or you can reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live here in the studio. You can tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I have been listening to public radio since 1983. You'll get national news and local news, but it's the culture and the arts and the things that are going on around town that you'll never hear on the airwaves, except here at Hawaii Public Radio. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Psychologist Oliver Hill is on a crusade to change the way we think about children's intelligence. All children are educable. We don't throw away children. We don't assume because they test poorly that they don't have the capacity to learn. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason, Thursdays at 6.30 on Hawaii Public Radio. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ferraro Choi, and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Ben Trevino and Aaron Landry. Ben is the president COO of Bike Share Hawaii. Of course, uh, he's also the uh, one of the founders of Inner Island Terminal, a Honolulu-based nonprofit organization with projects including community spaces, the Kakako Agora, an R&D bookstore, and cafe. I love those spots. Aaron, meanwhile, is, in addition to being a Snapchat star, That's the right. general manager of Car2Go Hawaii. He has experience in media, technology, politics, and, of course, just getting things done. He's driven by big ideas and making life better. For everyone. And of course, how difficult is it to overcome the desire for ownership? And of course, we'd love to hear your comments and questions. And that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Hey, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for inviting us out. Thanks for having us. Hey, so, uh, you know, the idea of, uh, let's start with the, the idea of sharing, the sharing economy. What exactly is the sharing economy and 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 why is it gaining in popularity? And, and Aaron, maybe you can share some of your thoughts. Well, I think the sharing economy is about the idea where you don't have to own every single thing that you use. And um, there's a, a lot of sharing economy uh, aspects now where there might be a, a community pool, for example, mm-hmm. and multiple people can use the pool um, versus everybody having a house with their own pool. Um, there's certainly more of that. But once you start applying it to services... Um, and property that people would normally own, such as you know a car or a bike, um, it becomes a little bit more complicated than a pool. But um, there's constructs on how people will pool together to 
do that. Excuse the pun. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, we I, I work in real estate among 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 other things, and one of the trends that's uh, front page for our industry right now, of course, is the ongoing increase of people who are renting rather than owning homes or being more uh, mobile. Uh, I mean, in terms of staying in one place for very long. And when you talk about car sharing, it's that you can borrow a car, uh, like rent, it's like a rental car for a day. And so more and more people are kind of not looking forward to picking up those large, expensive assets that are almost major life decisions for the the average middle-class person and saying, you know what, I don't even need to worry about car payments, mortgage payments. My life is simpler without those things. And it also has industry worried, you know, car dealerships probably worried. People who sell houses obviously are worried about that. But on the other hand, we've been hearing about this for a while. I can think of maybe five or six startups in the last 10 years that says, Hey, we'll set this up for your neighborhood. You can all share your riding more, and nobody else needs to buy a riding more. But they don't last very long. So on one hand, you can sort of see the human benefit of sharing things, but maybe kind of a resistance both on the businesses that might lose business and maybe even the people who like to own their own riding more. Uh, What is happening now, do you think, that might give these concepts greater heft? I think... it has to do with, it's, it's in some ways a generational thing too. I think a lot of younger people are seeing how expensive it is to own certain things, you know, whether it be a house or a car or even like a nice bike. So I think people are thinking about different ways to um, uh, share those things. It's like, well, maybe I only want to use something for a short period of time. And I think, I think our media is also uh, changed in that way too. I mean, people used to subscribe to magazines. And a lot of people still subscribe to magazines, and now it's a little bit more disposable. I mean, people will get snippets and shorter segments, and and they don't care if they keep it or they don't care if they even bookmark it on a website anymore. They just figure, well, if I need to find that article, I can just find it again. Mm-hmm. Actually, and you, now that you bring that up, it makes me think of my own practices. You know, I used to be an MP3 or first a CD hoarder. Actually, mm-hmm. first a cassette tape hoarder, well, then a CD yeah, hoarder. Well, not a record hoarder, an MP3 too. hoarder. <laughs> and then now I can't even remember the last time I put that those music files on my phone or my computer because I just stream RDO or Spotify or Google Music or Apple Radio, so I can see that. Now, Ben, um, what's your take on this uh, as a, I would say, a representative of the, that next generation that might not necessarily aspire to owning that large uh, five- or six-figure investment? Um, what do you think uh, is, is, is driving more people toward the sharing economy? Well, I think you, you and Aaron both touch on this to some extent, which is that you need to provide this compelling alternative to ownership, right? I mean, the benefit of ownership is that you don't have to, you know, not everyone likes living with roommates uh, because roommates can crowd your style. They, you know, they may not have the same philosophy on taking care of nice things that that you might have. (laughs) But at the same time, if you can provide a service or, or you can create a mechanism that allows people to get something better, right, to really add value to the experience of doing something, say, riding a bike or or taking a car, using a car for, for an errand, then I think that's where the sharing economy starts to kick in. We've always shared things. I mean, we have libraries. There are community pools, uh, like Aaron was mentioning. And uh, now I think what we're seeing with the sharing economy is that items for which we didn't have mechanisms that made sharing effective, right? The riding mower, there's a little bit too much tied up in ownership to make mm-hmm. a, a community riding mower really a compelling thing because somebody might break it and then everybody loses, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but with something like bike share, and, and I will talk about bike share because that's what I know about at this point. 
something like bike share, if you need to ride a bike, uh, owning your own bike can be kind of a hassle, especially from a maintenance standpoint. So if you have 2,000 bikes that you have access to from a, from a public standpoint, uh, that can be very attractive. The bikes are always where you need them. Uh, you never have to worry about fixing them. And so the idea that you would have to own your own bike, figure out where you're going to get it fixed, if it has a flat tire, now you're out of luck, uh, those considerations never come into play. All the hassles that are associated with ownership go away. So, you know, um, Ben, I mean, that's a that's a good point. I mean, when you talk about some of these large ticket items, I mean, when you decide you want to rent instead of own a home, I, you know, I can see where the decision might be to uh, unshackle yourself from all the things that tie you down by having, you know, to own a home. And similarly with a car, people might go through the financial decision of, I have to buy insurance, I have to pay for gas, I have to do maintenance. And if you start to add up all those costs, then it might make sense to, Look at a, a car sharing uh, type of economy. When you took a, when you look at um, when you look at bike sharing, what do you think are some of the major uh, problems that you're solving with with sharing a pool of bikes? Well, bike sharing is, you know, when you think of bike sharing, the first word that jumps out is bike, and so you you're automatically in this frame of mind. It's replacing my personal bike, which isn't strictly what bike sharing is about. Okay. It's it's a piece of a larger transportation ecosystem that says I can ride a bike to this bar, but then at the bar, I do something that makes me no longer capable of riding the bike back safely. <laughs> and so I'm going to take a cab instead. And you can take these, you can string together one-way trips that make sense uh, because we live in a rich transportation ecosystem. We don't have to drive everywhere ourselves. Maybe you catch a ride with a friend. Maybe you take an Uber. Maybe you uh, take a car share. So, so, so ex- explain how the bike share works. And so I can, I can catch a bike from, I mean, I can pick up a bike from where, where, wherever the bike is, right. is, is stationed, and then I can drive it to a bar what, and, and lock it up off outside the bar. Right, and then right. I can catch a U- Uber back home. I mean, uh, that's, so, so the way a typical bike share configuration, if you've seen a system like City Bike in New York or Capital Bike Share in D.C., it is a network of of public bikes that are accessible via these docking stations. And so the docking station includes a kiosk where you can pay for uh, a short-term or long-term membership to access the bikes. Uh, and then you can also check the bike out, essentially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you can take this bike from any station where they're available. And and uh, typically, they're laid out very densely. So there's always one within walking distance mm-hmm. of another. Uh, and bike it to any other location where there's docks. And it makes the whole transaction very simple because you never have to worry about finding a rack to put it in or kind of understanding where something's going to be. You just assume that there's always going to be stations near the destinations you want to go to. I I was recently in Washington, D.C., in fact, a couple of weeks ago or maybe a month ago now, and I was really impressed by the Capitol Bike Share you said it was. Mm -hmm. They were truly everywhere I went. And, of course, after as as walkable as that city is, there was that point where I was like, you know what, I think bikes probably would have been better. And I I did toy with the idea of giving a shot, and now I'm kind of regretting I didn't. Now, uh, we're talking to Ben Trevino and Aaron Landry about the sharing economy, about Bike Share Hawaii and Car2Go Honolulu, and ways that we can uh, shun ownership and still get where we need to go. If you've got a question or a thought, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. We're also listening for you on Twitter. Now, uh, Aaron, uh, one of the I've, I've been excited about Car2Go, too. You talk about maintenance costs and things that come with owning a car. That's, I would say, a higher bar than there would be for a bike. Um, but Ben mentioned a couple of times, and a lot of people, when they think sharing economy, they think of that disruptive transportation network company, Uber, which is hmm. like ride sharing. So a lot of 
times I think people might confuse Uber or ride sharing or Lyft with uh, uh, car sharing, like car to go. How, how do you ex- is that a distinction that you need to be able to make? Yeah, I mean, car, car share is uh, quite a bit different. It's more, um, I mean, what's similar uh, to ride-sharing companies is you use an app to, to find a car. But the beauty is it's actually very similar to bike share in a way, where you use an app to find where a car is or where a bike is in the case of bike share, um, and then you drive it yourself. It's, it's an on-demand um, vehicle that you can use, and you just pay by the minute. Um, so that's... It's very similar to bike share in the sense, too, that you, you just go from point A to point B. Um, and so that's, that might be where some of the confusion is, too. But it's it's closer related to a rental car because it, it is indeed like a short-term rental that you would do by the minute. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't get a driver. Nobody's going to pick you up. You just happen to have a car waiting for you at the base of your building, and you can drive it someplace else for that. that exactly. Time. So in the case of the uh, – I guess in both of your cases where you have the, the lot or the docking stations where the bikes are, you pick it up. I mean, you've got a subscription. You can take it to wherever your destination is. If you're going to, let's say, a restaurant and you park your uh, car to go, do you have to then return it back to the parking lot that you picked it up from? No. And that, that's actually one of the beauty, uh, beautiful things about how car to go works is um, if you take certain neighborhoods, like like I like to dine at Town and Kaimuki, mm-hmm. um, and there's a couple of restaurants in Waikiki that are also very, really busy and a couple of restaurants in downtown that I visit frequently. And... The issue around those those places is that there's a real issue with parking. And so when you park your car-to-go vehicle there, that car is immediately available for somebody else to use. So compared to somebody else who might just park there and it might sit there for three hours, um, somebody who's leaving the restaurant or somebody else could actually take that vehicle and go somewhere else with it. So there's a higher uh, churn or turnover mm-hmm, of these mm-hmm. parking spaces that make it more efficient. And so when the, when you are ready to leave and you, you I mean you could make a decision, well do I want to use car to go or do I want to use bike share or do I want to take a taxi or do I want to take the bus? Um, and if you choose car to go, you can just look at your app and find out where the nearest car happens to be at that time. Oh, interesting. So, okay, so let's say you went to the restaurant, you parked your car or car your, your car to go. Uh, you are done, it's gone. So <laughs> now you have to choose what other options that you might have. But if it's still there, the time between you parked it and the time between that the, you finished your dinner, you're not paying for it anymore, right? I mean, you're not that's, paying. That's correct. Right. Uh, I mean, there is there's a couple additional options too. Like if you if you park a car to go car and you want to absolutely make sure that that car stays there mm-hmm. when you get back, mm-hmm. you can pay for it to stay there. I see. So that's that's one of the options um and it's the same it's the same rate. Right. Um and then there's discounted rates too if if it's more than an hour and oh, such okay, as that well, too. But an, another option too that's that's on our app is you can set what's called a radar. So um, let's say you know you're going to leave this restaurant in about a half hour, um, you can set up a little radar which says you know maybe within 500 feet or a mile or a kilometer or whatever whatever distance you want, and say just give me a push notification when a car ends up here, and it's and, and then the car can come up. And then you can say, oh, I want this car. And then you can reserve it for up to 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. So it tries. To, so we try to resolve a lot of these issues of, of people trying to find cars and try to make it as convenient as possible for them. Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely want to talk about some of the logistics because I, I can imagine already where, let's say you're talking about the lantern floating in Magic Island. And uh, people find their way to the mall. They shop there. They're, they're okay. They might have taken the bus there or, or such. And they're all going to one major event. 
And then they decide that after the lanterns are floating that they all want to go home at the same time. And suddenly, if you had, if you had uh, 100 or 50 bikes at Alamana or 30 car-to-go cars at Alamana, they're all gone. You get wiped out. So at some point, how do you basically hope that the network effect and the movement of people keeps that churn rate natural? Or is there some point where you might have to reposition these bikes, uh, Ben? So special events are are a major topic of conversation for bike sharing systems around the country. And and I was just on um, a phone call about it. So one one major example of a of a, an event that wipes out a, a bike share fleet is South by Southwest. Mm-hmm. So Austin has a bike sharing system called Austin B-Cycle. And every time, you know, when, when South by comes into town, they just get destroyed with activity. And bikes move in certain patterns and they're the, the rebalancing task becomes much more difficult because all the activity is concentrated around the convention center and, and other key locations in Austin. Uh, so the solutions to those things are – there is no natural system rebalancing at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are ways to – you know, the, the thing that happens, though, is that you still create this benefit, right? The fact that there is a system in place means that you can still supply. You can redeploy your resources to meet the demand that's created by this event. So there are these things that are called – uh, bike share valets, where they'll essentially stock trucks or containers of bikes in these ad hoc corrals that you can use to check out bikes and meet the demand as it as it comes mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm I'm curious. So, when you start to look at the economic model in any city, uh, there has to be some equation that you base the number of bikes you want to purchase for that metropolitan area that meets the peak demand and maybe you know the normal kind of demand. And somewhere in between is where the optimal level of, of bike investment is. Right. I mean, can you kind of give us a sense of the thought process that might go through, how, you know, in, when you start to deploy in Honolulu, how many bikes do we actually deploy? In? Well, the system that we're planning is, is going to include about 2,000 bikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how that number was arrived at is, there, you know, you never really know. There, it's a really dynamic system. Every day that the bike lane is in effect, right? Changes the demand for for more bicycling, right? It, it makes it you when you enable people to bike safely, then you know you create more demand for things like bike share, and then as the bikes come in, it may create even more demand, and then as locations are or are not successful, you may cycle through, you may recycle your assets mm-hmm, more efficiently, mm-hmm. which means that you don't have to have as many bikes because right, right. because the system will you know gets used. You can use a bike five times a day instead of two times a day. Uh, and and not necessitate the need for. I would imagine bikes. that the, this is certainly a challenge for for or or a fun challenge for say big data people yeah. and you know trying to sort out sociologists even city planners civic planners. Um, Aaron, for the logistics for car to go, you said that you know parking is always an issue. Um, I would imagine it's it's safe to say that a car to go car, although cute and very small, I think it's a smart car. Yes, uh, uh, still takes a little more space than a bike does, and can take a parking space. And there are sometimes challenges uh, where, let's say, if everybody's taking their car to go to Waikiki Beach, there's a lot of car to goes left there, and other people might say, "Well, I wanted to go into Waikiki, but there's all these car to goes there do as well." So uh, there's probably more of an outreach element and community engagement element to make sure that they understand that these were cars that might have been brought in from someone's home, but it's just a different way. And in fact, it moves more frequently than maybe uncle from Waianae bringing his car into Waikiki. It it, it can move more quickly. Uh, What have you done in terms to uh, swage any concerns over car-to-go cars, which is what someone might say, that's more cars in Honolulu, period, that it's not as bad as that sounds? Right. 
Um, well, first of all, we actually, very similar to how a bike share program works, we have a fleet team that works on this rebalancing. Um, and we also study the different patterns and how people um, move cars, you know, depending on the time of the day, the day of the week, um, even with temperature and weather. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can kind of look at, like, what are the, how are people moving around and why are they moving where they are? And so we're able to predict a lot of times, like, where there's going to be high co- higher concentrations of vehicles or where it's going to be a little bit more difficult for somebody to find one. So we actually uh, do a rebalancing internally to try to um, – uh, make sure we alleviate that and help uh, serve where um, we can predict people will be needing mm-hmm. vehicles. You know, and I think this is a, a fascinating discussion because I think once you understand how it's operating in a particular area, you can start to see how to perhaps expand beyond that area. Exactly. So we want to hold that thought. Uh, we wanna, uh, we'll take this short break to continue our conversation with both uh, Ben Trevino and Aaron Landry about bike share and car to go. And what does the technology piece look like for these uh, car sharing and bike sharing uh, enterprises? We'd, of course, love to hear from you as well. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We have comments and uh, Periscope live video viewers on Twitter, so we'll watch for you as well. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe. On the next On Being, Sister Simone Campbell of the Nuns on the Bus on how to be spiritually bold. I get invited to where people are hungry, and I'm willing to try to be food for them. Just be available. Just be present. But it's all about keeping my heart open to what's around and not closing up. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday morning at 10, following Weekend Edition. On the next morning edition, the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund defends police officers accused of misconduct. There is an expectation that a police officer act reasonably, not that they have to be right. We take you inside situations police officers face every day and examine how they deal with certain challenges on the next morning edition. Weekday mornings from 5 to 8.30 on HPR One. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Ben Trevino and Aaron Landry about the business model for sharing. And, of course, you can give us a call here at 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And we were talking right before the break about just the idea of, of modeling. And I would love to see what the the algorithms are in the back office on looking and, and following how these uh, cars or bikes are moving uh, through the community. And I wanted to get you both to talk a little bit about what you need to understand before you move from one community and expand perhaps to the next community. And, and maybe, Aaron, you can start with, you know, where are you starting this uh, service in? Where, where is it going to start? And, and how do you determine whether you need to expand it to someplace else? Okay. Well, the, the f- some of the first steps that we take, um, you, know, you look at you know, where are people living, uh, where are they working, and you try to come up with an idea of like, how are people making their commutes now? Um, we also look at like, how are people commuting, f- commuting from long distances? And like, maybe if, uh, what are these 
populations like? And would they consider taking uh, a bus or carpooling in if they knew that they now would have a car available in the urban core? Mm-hmm. So we look at those things first, um, and there's some data we can look at, but some of the stuff is actually um, this data that you can't really get unless you go to the neighborhoods themselves. And so we've been spending a ton of time going to neighborhood boards and different community organizations and talking a little bit about what this is and finding out what the reaction is and finding out what what different people's needs are in terms of um, not just uh, in terms of needing cars, but also what the parking issues in different neighborhoods, neighborhoods are. And they're, they're very different. Like um, parking in Waikiki and how people perceive parking and cars is very, very different than Makiki, for example. So um, we're taking in a lot of that feedback, and that's going to help shape how um, our what we call a home area would look like in terms of where our, the primary area of our service would be. Mm-hmm. I like the way that you describe that one scenario. Say, I would take the bus into town, except sometimes I need to run an errand during lunch, or sometimes I, uh, I need to pick something up. So I drive my car just in case I need it, but otherwise my car sits in that parking lot downtown all day versus I can use these other options and I can now just hop a bike or I can borrow a car for just one hour to get something done. So I think also going to communities and sharing those scenarios are important. So, Ben, for for bikes, uh, I know we have that beautiful new bike track on South King Street, and that's probably one place where you might put at an intersecting point for your first deployment. But where are you looking for the hub, the heat map red dot for bike share deployment for Bike Share Hawaii? Well, we expect a lot of the activity, frankly, to come from Waikiki. Uh, there's Waikiki, I'm not sure if everyone knows this, but is is as dense as Manhattan. Uh, there are There's an extremely high number of residents there, plus all the visitors, obviously, is what we think about. Um, but because of that density, it becomes a great source for both trip origins and trip destinations. Uh, and we think a lot of the a lot of the bike share activity is going to be focused around Waikiki. The the rest of the service region extends all the way to Chinatown. We also expect a lot of downtown activity, and then throughout that corridor, there's a nice mix of residential and and uh, commercial and retail activity. There's Alamoana Shopping Center, Kakaka, which is going to be extremely dense very soon as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and then. We hope to also extend out into Makiki, our other, our other high-density residential mm-hmm. zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we're thinking about expansion, there's a few we, – we think about all the same things that Aaron talked about, demographics, uh, the, the land use mix in an area. But another consideration for bikes is uh, topography, right? Like, um, so outside the oh, yeah. region that we are about to deploy, as soon as you start to extend even a little bit outside of it, you start to run into some grade. Uh, and when – People have to bike up hills. Uh, they they don't always opt to do Take that, which mm-hmm. which creates an additional operational cost for the bike share operation when we have to rebalance around the fringes uh, right. and then move bikes up hills where people right. might not otherwise take them. And so it raises some interesting questions because uh, one of the new technological directions for bicycling is e-bikes, uh, these electric assist bikes or mm-hmm. bikes that have some kind of motor uh, that will help give you an extra boost mm-hmm. when, when you need it for something like a hill. And so that's a consideration. That's one of the things that we're thinking about going forward for both the expansion of the Honolulu system and for other communities that might have more more grade associated. Yeah, I want to I want to hear a little bit more about that because uh, I mean, where does a a bike become a motorcycle or you know <laughs> something else when you got a you know a sort of an extra boost on it? You know, we're talking to Ben Trevino from Bike Share and Aaron Landry from Cartago. And of course, if you have a comment, comment or question, feel free to give us a call here. That number is nine four one three six eight nine. Or from the uh, neighbor islands, uh, you can give us a call eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. We want to welcome Paul from Maui to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. 
Aloha. Thank you very much for taking the call. Sure. I really enjoy your show. Thank it's you. So, so much information you guys have. It's really great. Um, I have two questions about the car to go situation. Um, is that is it possible to use car to go as an alternative for rental cars for visitors? Great question, Aaron. Um, that is a wonderful question. Um, obviously, we want to uh, work with people who are visiting from neighbor islands. Um, we don't have all the nuts and bolts worked out on that yet, um, but that's definitely some uh, d- definitely something that we want to um, work with. Because I mean, I know a lot of people who you know will travel you know from Maui or from the Big Island or Kauai, and just come here for day trips and just have like maybe one or two meetings and then fly back. So we want to be able to provide that. Uh, solution, but there's a lot of logistics in terms of right. working with the working with the airport and also working with parking. Um, so it's it's something that we're working on, but uh, it's nothing I can. So from a, right from now. a logistics standpoint, I mean, uh, are you now competing with the the rental car units, and and or is it just a matter of getting a lot and putting some car to go cars at the lot and having visitors come in and grab them and go to their destination? Well, different different car to go cities, um, and we're in like 29 other cities. Um, the the airport parking situation is handled differently in, in right, depending right. on uh, and sometimes there's a remote lot that there's a shuttle sometimes there's parking right at the airport um, or sometimes the, the shuttle uh, goes quite a distance away if, if the airport is far right. from the uh-huh. urban core so um, there's a bunch of scenarios and it's something we're working on but uh, okay. well the scenario I just traveled to Kauai and uh, rented a car to go to a, a single event the entire day, um, and if my car could have been used by someone else while I was at that single location, I think that, that a lot of people can see the benefit mm-hmm. of that. Um, there yeah. was a second question, though. Yeah, uh, Paul, did you? Uh, um, my second question is: Okay, I get the car to go, and it doesn't have any gas in it. Um, <laughs> no, that's my responsibility. There? Okay, so so the the way that uh, gas works is that uh, so w- when you use car to go, it includes insurance, it includes gas, it includes parking. Um, and so if you get a vehicle that has 20% or less fuel in it, um, if you, there's a gas card inside the car. So if you take it to oh. a gas station and fill it up yourself, um, we'll give you credit on your account. So to, to, to more than compensate you for the time that you spent to fill up our mm-hmm, vehicles mm-hmm. because um, it benefits it, – it's a win-win for everybody. If you're able to fuel our car, we're, we're going to give you some free minutes to use. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Paul, for uh, calling those questions. Thank you so much. Aloha. Yeah, thanks. Aloha. So, uh, and and I'm just curious, I mean, are you thinking about expanding beyond Oahu, and are you considering the neighbor islands as well? Um, The... We are, I mean, obviously, we're we're looking at everything. Not immediately, Um, obviously. But, but yeah, not not immediately. Um, The the solution that Car2Go has um, really works in uh, tightly knit and urban areas. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say it doesn't work in other areas, um, but it works the best in places that are congested because um, not just traffic congestion, but also parking congestion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's really where it shines. Um, but that's not to say that in the future um, we'll be able to refine things and uh, uh, work in more rural areas. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the other things when we talk about logistics that occurs to me, I mean, I, it's good, for example, to hear the Car2Go covers parking cost, uh, insurance. Obviously, there's going to be a qualification program to be in the Car2Go program. But with bike share, I can imagine someone might like their bike share bike a little too much. So um, what what measures do you see in place that if somebody says, I, not only do I, want, I actually, I don't want to share this bike anymore. I want to take it home with me and just disappear off the radar. I mean, what are you doing for that? <laughs> They're very sexy bikes. So I can I can see why somebody <laughs> might want to take home one of these giant clunker, uh, clunker bicycles. But 
So one of the interesting things uh, about the system design is that when you uh, check out a bike with Bikeshare, you typically have to use a credit card to to pay for it, right? The way the kiosk works is they don't accept cash, they accept credit cards. Uh, and one nice byproduct of that is that whenever a bike is out, it has an identity associated with it. So if you walk off with a bike or you lose it, you are on the hook for it, uh, for this asset that is worth you know, $1,000 to $1,500, uh, which can be, is a significant deterrent to uh, anyone because it's the bike on your room. card. Yeah, it's you're you're responsible. And basically, like the when you have this bike, you want to return it as quickly as possible. One, because you're being charged for the time that you're using it, mm-hmm. and two, because now you have this responsibility for for this asset. Interesting. So, so Ben, I mean, I, I you know, I think a lot of the sharing uh, business startups that are are being suggested here uh, rely a, a high degree on the technology that's really supporting it. So. Uh, whether it's Car2Go or in, in the case of uh, uh, bike share, what kinds of technology is really inherent or integrated with the bike so that it gives you the good kind of data that you're looking for to find out where are people taking it, what paths are they taking, and what, where are they dropping it off? Right. I think that's, a, that's an extremely salient point when it comes to bike sharing because bike sharing as a concept has been around for, for probably 100 years, mm-hmm, and there have been attempts mm-hmm. to make these things work in other cities where – where the idea is like you can have these public bikes and it'd be great if everyone could access them, except that they walk away or you they know, all they end get up trashed at the beach. And, yeah, mm-hmm. they end up in a trench somewhere, right? Just because <laughs> people thought that that would be a good thing to do with bikes. <laughs> and um, but what what technology enabled bikes, this very old technology, to become was integrated into this network that allowed operators to manage a large fleet of bikes uh, in a way that kept them well-maintained, free of vandalism, uh, and uh, and was able to communicate to people where they were. And so it's essentially this combination of automated payments, right? Do you have a payment kiosk that's something that we see that's very common in, like, parking structures, Mm -hmm. right? There's communication technology. So cellular cards uh, in those kiosks so you can communicate the location of bikes uh, as as the network is churning. Uh, Solar power. Uh, which means that you can lay down stations, this light infrastructure, anywhere in the city without having to trench or do any major excavation that might that might also deter the rollout of of equipment, and and that's basically and then and then custom bike design that that is also a deterrent for theft and lets you be have very strong security and make sure that bikes don't get pulled out of out of docks. Mm-hmm. So, is there any any geolocation associated with the bike itself? Uh, sometimes in some systems. So that's another good question, and it it highlights uh, the difference in two major kinds of bike sharing systems. So there's what are called smart docks uh, and what are called smart bikes. And the difference is that with smart docks, uh, all of the telecommunications technology is embedded in the kiosk and docking points. Mm-hmm. And so the way you know where a bike is, it checks into a dock, and that dock knows where it is. Right, right. Uh, with smart bikes, all of the the technology is embedded on the bike. And so there's some kind of GPS that tells, like with Car2Go, here is where I am. So when it gets returned, quote unquote, to the system, mm-hmm. it can let you know where to find it, right? Because the app has to tell you this is where this bike is. It's not at a designated docking station necessarily. Is that and so the, the kind GPS of bikes that you guys are deploying? So we're evaluating, we're, we're considering both options. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're going to figure out from the proposals what's best for 
for this community, and it might be different for different communities in the state. Mm-hmm. Now, Aaron, for car to go, I mean, that I imagine a lot of those things are also in place in a car sharing system in terms of the technology pieces. Is there anything that you wanted to highlight in terms of uh, what the app does or what the data does um, to help this system work better in a city? It's uh, very, uh, very, very similar in regards. Like, so when a car gets parked, then it's it phones home and says, mm-hmm. "Hey, this is my location. This is how much fuel I have. This is if somebody reported any damage or if if the if the fuel lights, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the, like, and you know, if anything, anything that's going on with the car after it gets parked, it, it reports home and says, "Hey, this is my condition." And um, if it's in good condition, which uh, most of the time, obviously, it would be, um, then it shows up on the app for people to be able to find. And one of the things that I, I've, I've been imagining, and you can tell me if I'm crazy, whether it's a bike or a car, wouldn't it be kind of neat if I could uh, I could say, hey, wow, I'm getting on this bike, and this bike spent a lot of time in Waikiki, or you know, this uh, this bike was was last in Hawaii Kai. How interesting is that? I mean, is that something? Why do you want to know where that bike was? Well, you know, was? it's like those dollar like bills. Like the dollar people, bills. <laughs> yeah, I want to know where my – is that well, something that people are doing? You You know that – we're going to do that. All right. Yeah. No, no. Like what, what, well, what is that? What well, is actually, that? I, if I could interrupt, we're, we're, we are not going to do that because <laughs> okay. it's, it's a privacy yes, issue with us. I can so we, so when somebody, we, we, we can't reveal who had the car before you, where it was or anything like that. We just want to treat it. This is your car for right now. Got it. Well, uh, can, both of your programs are coming soon. Mm-hmm. So people need to go somewhere to find out, maybe sign up to be notified. Uh, where can we find more information on car to go Honolulu, Aaron? So, Car to go is C A R two G O the number two. So C A R the number two G O dot com, um, and there isn't um, there isn't a Honolulu specific site yet, um, but you can follow us on Twitter at at Car to Go Honolulu. Fantastic, um, and there's going to be more to come. Stay tuned, uh, and then Ben, you can find more information about Bike Share Hawaii at bikesharehawaii.org. dot org. Uh, we have a Facebook page, a Twitter account, Bikeshare HI, and an Instagram account, Bikeshare Hawaii. Fantastic. Sounds good. We will put that all up on our show notes tonight. Ben Trevino is, ben Trevino is the president, COO of Bikeshare Hawaii. Aaron Landry is the general manager of Car to Go Honolulu. And we want to thank you both for joining us today. This is great. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll learn about the challenges and rewards of being a communicator for science. Wow. If you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us at feedback at BiteMarks.org. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. You can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chung, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Coslin. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Soft Sleep and a song called Unravel. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.